This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So first, introduction. We'll just talk a bit briefly about the will and what it is. And then I'll make three points, starting with not the freedom of the will, but the necessity of the will, what the will has to will, what it's directed towards, so that will be the first point. The second section will be in how the will is moved and how the will moves. And so this is the cooperation between the will and the intellect. And then the third point will be on free choice. How do we know about it? Thomas doesn't usually appeal to our experience. We don't look into ourselves and see the free will. We notice that we praise and blame others. We see them as responsible for their acts. And we can also give an account of its freedom in terms of its causes. The causes are indeterminate, so the, uh, so the choice itself is uh, going to be indeterminate. So first, the will. What is it? I'll talk a little bit about the will's willing, but remember, as we heard yesterday, is the will a subject of action or a, no, not really, right? Uh, it's like seeing. You can talk about the power of sightseeing, and Thomas does, but that's improper. You can talk about my eye seeing. That's less proper, it's a proper sense, but less proper, why? Because the eye is a substantial part, it subsists, it has an action or activity. But we'd probably say the eye and the brain. Or we can talk about the person seeing, or the dog seeing, or the cat seeing, that's most proper, the whole organism. So as we heard yesterday, the intellect and the will are for Thomas, not activities of an organ. They aren't activities of the composite. So they're powers that inhere directly in the soul. So we can say the soul wills or the soul understands like we might say that the eye does, but really it's the whole person that, well, you might say, well, what about in hell? No, okay, no. Before we get the bodies back, right, um, after we're dead, it's that part that's the, that's the, that is the uh, subject of the action, namely the, the soul. But before we die, it's the whole human being. Okay, so what is the will then? The will is a power. Dr. Gorman talked about the appetites earlier today. Aristotle distinguishes between cognitive and appetitive powers but he doesn't clearly distinguish between appetitive powers, powers that cause motion. What you have in Thomas Aquinas is the fruits of centuries of reflection on the nature of appetite. And so you have a division between the sense appetite, which follows on sense cognition. I see the food and I desire it, or my dog does. My dog loves it, he goes towards the food. Another dog gets in the way and he bites it, okay? You have this whole rich emotional life in the dog. This is appetitive. It involves goods, bads, actions. Thomas thinks that if you have knowledge, you're going to have an appetite because you're going to know something is good or is bad. The will is the rational appetite. This definition is, I think, made popular, if not developed, by St. John Damascene, and it involves thinking then of the will is like the sense appetites but with respect to the intellect, goods that we can know and grasp. My dog might fight to the death for his food or for access to a female dog in heat. My dog isn't going to fight for the spread of communism, okay? It's not something that my dog can grasp. And even when thinking about his family life and the propagation of dogs. He's not thinking about his role in relation to other jobs and for the upbringing of children. My dog doesn't think of those things. 
And you might say, well, a lot of my friends don't think of these things either. <laughs> but the whole point is they can. They're the kinds of creatures who can think about the good life, right? So you have all of the normal, the rich emotional life of the dog with a special uh, bang at the end, which is the will, and that raises things to a whole new level. You have moral evaluation. You might say bad dog, but it would be strange if you had a uh, hanging for a dog, right? You got people to see it. Or you, you, you don't punish a dog in that way. You punish a dog to correct them and change their behavior, but it's not because there's something due to them. Human beings, there's something more when you punish them. So we're going to talk about acts of the will. Keep in mind that does the will really act? No, that's improper. Uh, it's the soul or the whole human being that performs these acts. But we can talk about the will acting like we can talk about the intellect and, and thinking. So first point, the will, what is it? An appetite. Thomas Aquinas, following almost everybody, thinks that humans, when they act, are responding to the world around them, to what they perceive as good. Often you'll have students thinking, well, I make up my own values, my own decisions. Uh, it's interesting. I wonder where we would get such a magical power, right? We have some sort of values, and then we can project them onto the world. That seems to me almost superstitious. But whether or not we could conceive that, the way Thomas thinks of it is in lines of the way of your dog recognizing food and going after it or reproducing, except that we can use our reason. We can think about it. We can think about, am I getting a little tubby? Uh, we can think about, is this, going, is this uh, man going to be the proper father of my children? We, we can think about these issues. And there are other goods that are uh, more proper to human beings, like doing mathematics. You might think about all of the joy, all of the good that you got from doing mathematics as a younger person, take it up again. Your dog can't do that, but it's a response to things that are good. We're thinking about objects as good or bad. Now then, what do we will? The will is an appetite, is in response to something perceived as good. It might not really be good. Some people might think this, is, this 13th bourbon is good for me, and they are wrong, okay? But, or they're probably wrong. It depends on your tolerance and your background. But at any rate, is there anything, what, what ultimately drives this, Thomas thinks, is a necessary direction to the good in general. So the will's not entirely free, at least in different senses of freedom. Thomas distinguishes between three relevant senses of freedom. Uh, one freedom is simply freedom from coercion. Right? I put a criminal in handcuffs, he is not free. I uh, push somebody off the roof and he kills an endangered toad when he hits the earth, that's not his free act, okay? That's coercion. The will is the kind of thing that can't be coerced. Why? Because by definition, it's directed to something. It's the, the, the source of movement is within the will. It's not like a body that somebody else could pick it up and carry it around, right? It would be contradictory for God to coerce the will, for instance. It's not just that God wouldn't do it, but that he couldn't do it. It's not the kind of thing that can happen. There's another kind of necessity, which is necessity uh, of the end, right? I might think something like, in order to be fit, I have to get up at four in the morning and lift weights, okay? And so that's necessary. At least I might see it as necessary. And you might argue that's really not necessary because all you have to do is these special exercises in plates for seven minutes a day, and you can have a body um, like people on my commercials, right? But 
but at any rate, there's a kind of necessity there. To get to the end, you have to will the means. That's not repugnant to the will. That's just a normal kind of necessity, anything. To get to an end, you have to choose certain means. So coercion is incompatible with the will in the sense that the will just can't be coerced. The necessity of the end, that's a normal kind of necessity. But there's another kind of natural necessity, right? Natures, what things are. How do we study what things are? We look at how they behave. Is one thing heavier than another? How does it push down? Does one thing burn at a different temperature than another? What happens to one particle when we zap it with special rays? Okay. We're trying to see what these things are, and they behave in particular ways. So then the will, as a nature, is directed towards the good in, in general or to some notion of happiness. For Thomas, the, the will and the intellect are both spiritual powers, and there is a similarity, he thinks, between the will's desire for happiness and our intellect's grasp of the first principles. So if you think about first principles, there might be general first principles, like the principle of non-contradiction. Thing cannot both be and not be in the same way, at the same time, in the same respect. And we rely on that in some way all the time, although not explicitly. I, I hope. There are other principles. If we're learning geometry, I don't know about here. I always use geometry as an example of deductive reasoning in my classes. I did so for, for about uh, 15 years until a math teacher adjuncts for us said, don't you know in the public schools in Houston, we've stopped teaching proofs in geometry. Nobody bothered to tell me. But at any rate, if you study geometry, there's a good uh, there's a way of thinking about certain principles as being evident. You might argue about one or two or say, what if space is curved? But at any rate, you have the idea. There are certain principles. You assent to them. And then by thinking about those principles, the intellect itself moves on to conclusions. So you can demonstrate the Pythagorean theorem. So the will is going to be like that. The will is directed towards happiness or towards the good in general, as to first principles. But then with respect to the conclusions, the ways of getting there, it, it, the, these are more remote, less direct. Okay, So we see this comparison in the Summa Theologiae in my text one. For the intellect has cognition of the principles, naturally, and this cognition is a cause of a man's knowledge of these conclusions. Right? So it's science. It's a kind of knowledge where you derive conclusions from principles. Which man does not have cognition of naturally, but comes to have cognition of through discovery or teaching. So you learn to move from the in different ways, but in some way you learn to move from the principles to the conclusions. Similarly, and here he refers to the physics, the end plays the same role in the case of the will that the principles play in the case of the intellect. So the will naturally tends towards its own ultimate end. For every man naturally desires beatitude. That's the necessity of nature. And this natural act of the will is a cause of all other acts of the will, since a man wills whatever he wills for the sake of the end. Okay? So the fundamental cause of other willing is this will for the ultimate end, or happiness, or the good in general. And we don't have a choice about that any more than we have a choice about, do I fall when I jump off of a uh, cliff, okay? It's just given what I am, this is part of my direction. How do we make sense of my actions? We talk about what goods that I'm aiming at. Otherwise, it's crazy. Right? If there's no reason why I'm doing something, if I'm just up here scratching myself and I don't stop, you might say, the tension of being in front of everybody's really gotten to him. Right? Something's happened to his brain. Right? But if it's a human act, we look towards how is the person seeing this as part of the, of the good, how, as worthwhile. Okay. 
Now, there's an important point that needs to be made here. A lot of times people confuse the will for the good or for happiness with a will for one's own private good. This conflicts with Thomas's whole understanding of how the universe is ordered. It conflicts with his understanding of the will with just about everything, but you'll find this comparison. Uh, some people will say that this natural desire is egoistical. So in text two, I just point out that the will has as its object the good. The good can be good for itself, but it's not the good as good for oneself, right? So it's not under the description of one's own good, although in fact it will be one's own good. And even when we will other people, he thinks that there's an order of love, everybody does, uh, before Occam, not just that we should love ourselves more than others, but that we have to, at least with respect to our spiritual goods and with, with some other conditions. Um, why? Because we're all part of some bigger good, the order of the universe, and then we're all ordered to God together. And so it's this whole good that includes the goods of others that allows us to love others for their own sake, but there's no complete good in the other. So situated where we are, we have to will our own good more than that of other individuals except for God, and the choice is either between God and ourselves most of all, and ourselves is disordered, okay? So this doesn't mean egoism, the fact that we're directed towards uh, the good and that it's our own good. It's not as our own good. That's not what nature is directed towards. Same thing he thinks for the individuals in a species. They're directed to their own life, but most of all to the conservation of the species. Then the different species work for the good of the universe, for humans, which are on top of the created order of material things. And then, of course, there's angels and then the good of grace, which is more important than all the rest. So that's the first point. The will, like seeing, like hearing, is directed to something. It has a nature. Seeing is directed towards, say, color. Hearing to sound. Will to the understood good. And these goods aren't something that the will puts into the world, you know, sort of making our own values, putting values in a world without values. No, it's something that in order to act, you have to recognize certain things as good and pursue them. So then, you have the will. How does it work? How are our actions caused? Thomas talks, and, and other people of his time, talk, they, they talk more about free choice than free will. Because ultimately, acts of willing always presuppose acts of the intellect. We can't will something unless it's in some way known. Maybe very generally, maybe in a very confused way. Maybe it's not real knowledge, but it's just a mistake, but we have to have something in our intellect in order to will. And so what is the relationship between these two orders when we have a human act? So we might have something like my drinking of coffee because I'm trying to teach you uh, for the big bucks. So I've got a series of ends and goals. And what happens, I deliberate about how to do it, and then I move the coffee to my mouth, right? You can, you, the, the will explains the whole free human act of my moving my arm up and down, my looking around. But what ultimately causes this? It's important that there are two orders of causality here. The intellect moves the will as a final cause and a formal cause. It gives the content to the will. How do I you know that I'm willing coffee and not brandy? Because I think there's coffee in here. If I thought that there were brandy in here, um, maybe I wouldn't drink it, maybe I would, I don't know. Uh, also, if somebody spiked this before the talk because they thought it would be fun, I would in fact be drinking brandy, but it wouldn't be a human act of drinking brandy, right? Because I would have thought that it was coffee. So it's not my fault if I seem erratic. 
All right. So the intellect moves the will as a goal in specifying the act, making it one kind of act rather than another, formal and final causality. The will is what's called an agent cause. The will is what provides the motion. The will is what gets things moving. Okay. It moves the intellect, it moves the other powers of the soul, it moves itself, all in different ways. Okay. So how do you know what I'm acting for? You have to, in some way, make a guess about what I know. All right. You might say you can never see into the heart of somebody else and know what their knowledge is. Okay. I'm looking at my dog go after the food. Um, in order to make sense of that, I need to know my dog likes food. I need to know that he's seen it, right? I mean, I may not be a dog whisperer. There may be deep inner recesses accessible only to God, but I can pretty well say that he's still going after the food, okay? I'm not judging him, but this is the way I can, I'll call it an action of going after food. If my dog sees another dog in heat and is going, at, well, first I'm confused because uh, he's fixed, but aside from that, uh, if my dog weren't fixed and there were a dog in heat, I would kind of know what's going on. If I knew about dogs and if somebody had explained to me about these things, the birds and the bees, I could say my dog knows something about this, right? I could identify what's going on in terms of the knowledge. Human acts, though, we don't have just sense knowledge or seeing. We've got intellectual awareness. So the will, then, always needs the intellect. The intellect doesn't always need the will. Some later people, Descartes, for instance, if you had him in philosophy, seems to think that just to make a judgment, we're making an act of the will, not for Thomas. The intellect can move itself from premises to conclusions, but the, the will doesn't function on its own. So let's take a look at this text four. There are two ways in which something is said to affect movement. The first way is the manner of the end in which the sense in which an end is said to move an agent. It is in this way that the intellect moves the will. Since the will's object is a good, is intellectively understood, and it moves the will as an end. Right? So the intellect is grasping that this beer is good. Okay? It makes me a nicer person. I'm pretty crabby. I don't like to talk to people. But I'll, do, I'll drink the beer for the sake of others. Right? I'm seeing it as a good. The second way in which something is said to affect movement is in the manner of an agent, in the way in which the thing that affects an alteration moves the thing that is altered, and in the way in which the thing that gives an impulse moves the thing that is impelled. This is the way in which the will moves the intellect and all the powers of the soul. So the will is an agent or efficient cause. Two lines of causality. This is something that the Franciscans never grasped when they criticized Thomas Aquinas. I think it's because they had an incompetent, I mean, basically an incompetent correctorium. They were forced to read along with Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and then also some later people in Paris started to talk about the intellect's object as an efficient cause. So there are all these debates in the Middle Ages about you've got these two efficient causes. You've got the intellect moving, the impetus it supplies. You've got the will and the impetus it supplies. Which one works? Do you have some sort of, uh, do you have some sort of, right, determinism where the will is determined by the intellect or the intellect by the will? Uh, Thomists were often very confused by this simply because Thomists will want to admit that the intellect is in a normal sense the efficient cause of the will. So it didn't really, it was perplexing and irrelevant, most of the arguments. If you read the arguments of Scotus, they work fine against Godfrey of Fontaine and maybe Giles of Rome, but Scotus doesn't really discuss Thomas's position. It had kind of dropped out in the context, in the disputes, and I said they also had this just horrible, horrible book uh, that just 
whoever, the, the person who wrote it did not understand Thomas Aquinas and they were asked to read it when they read Thomas Aquinas. Okay. So this distinction between the intellect's role in providing the end or form and the will's role as agent becomes a distinction between the liberties of exercise and the liberty of specification. Uh, you have words like it in Thomas Aquinas. It's common enough in later literature. The liberty of exercise is about willing or not willing. That's rooted in the will, the impetus. The liberty of specification is about willing one good or another. I see this coffee. Oh, this looks pretty good. I see this water. It looks pretty good. I'm thinking, which one do I need? They might think that I'm a coffee fiend and an addict and won't listen to me. On the other hand, I might drink this and I will just kind of grow distracted and rambling. So I choose the coffee, right? Freedom, I'm thinking about both things. I choose one known good based on a judgment about it. So then, free choice, if we want to explain it, what it is, it's going to be an act of the will presupposing a judgment of the intellect it's informed by the intellect, really. And the freedom is rooted in the intellect's ability to make different judgments about different particulars. So if you look in text five, you'll see Thomas's uh, normal explanation or an example of how he describes our free choice. What happens? What's the cause of it? Again, he gives arguments from effects. He says, look, if we didn't have free choice, we wouldn't counsel, command, punish, etc." So there's a social aspect to it, but there's also an aspect to it based on his description of human nature. He doesn't do what Occam says and says, look, I look within myself, freedom, freedom. They even have like a special experiment in the 20th century at least, maybe, probably Daniel DeHaan knows more where people would say, make some free choices and hit a button. And so people would, ooh, free will, boom, 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 right there. And you wonder, who knows what they were hitting buttons in response to, right? I mean, it just goes to show when you're very philosophically confused, you can waste a lot of time and money. Okay, but, all right, so what happens? Well, think about the different goods. Um, you're judging that something should be pursued or avoided, and these judgments aren't just about the good in general, but about particular goods. It's like a dialectical syllogism. That doesn't mean a bad one, but very often in Thomas Aquinas, you might think he's demonstrating, but he's not. Why? Because we don't know the premises. We don't know them for certain. Or, or well, I mean, there are different reasons. And so you've got plenty of good arguments that aren't demonstrative, but they look like demonstrative arguments. Those are dialectical ones. And sometimes those can go different ways, right? Somebody might say nature can do nothing in vain, and somebody else says, well, what do you mean by that? So you've got dialectical arguments. And so you don't have a determination then in reasoning always the way that you do in geometry. The same thing when it comes to willing, right? If I want to go to heaven, I have to die in a state of grace, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, it's not determined, right, whether I do this thing or that thing. And so what are the ways in which our willing is undetermined? In text seven, we'll see that he gives three different ways. The first one is about different means to an end. The second is about willing or not willing. The third one is about true and apparent goods. Right? So what's the first way in text seven? There are many ways of reaching the last end, and for different people, different ways prove suitable. Right? Like, maybe when I was your age, I might have thought, well, I want to reach my last end by becoming a Dominican. And they said, what? There's an impediment. You're too ugly. Right? That's an impediment to holy orders at any rate, or it used to be. They'd know more about canon law nowadays than I do, but at one point, extreme ugliness was an impediment to holy orders, right? 
So it's not appropriate. It's not suitable for me. So you have to think about what the different uh, suitable goods are, right? Like choosing how to get here, choosing a plane or a bus, right? You might think, well, a plane's faster, but I won't go down in a fiery blaze in a plane the way that I would in a bus. So you think about that. So the second one is turning whether to will the end or not. This is like the liberty of exercise, right? And this is often overlooked. I mean, I overlook it all the time. Most people do. I mean, you allow that it's there and it's important and it's worth thinking about. There's a debate among Thomists whether there's a liberty of exercise with respect to happiness in general in this life uh, or not. But uh, a lot of people think that even the willing of happiness in general in this life we're free with respect to the liberty of exercise because we might just not will. We might will other things else or just focus on something else, right? We don't have to think about happiness and then will it. Um, and that's the same thing in, in SCOTUS. I'm sensitive about this because in my, my second book, I was mentioning how people are misinterpreting SCOTUS, and I said, well, you know, you've got to have some sort of difference in judgment to have a difference in act. And they said, well, what about uh, if somebody acts or not acts? Well, that's a different kind of liberty. That's liberty of exercise. But that's the same thing in Thomas Aquinas as well. All right, so acting or not acting. There's a kind of freedom there, maybe even with respect to happiness for Thomas Aquinas or thinking about happiness in general in this life. And the third, you know, aside from just different things being suitable for me, aside from just choosing not to will at all, there is the fact that I may choose to do something stupid because I'm thinking about it as good at the time, right? So that um, it seemed good at the time to spike my coffee, but now I'm getting a little wobbly and I'm wondering, was that the true good, okay? So, this is a liberty that we have to sin or not, but that's because we're thinking about things as good, but we're making a mistake. Maybe in general I know it's better not to get drunk in front of everybody at two in the afternoon, but I'm still doing it, okay? <laughs> I'm not doing it, don't point at me. This is just an example, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I've got to use the microphone. Okay. I thought, I thought you were going to call security on me. Okay. But you get the point, right? Thomas mentions uh, fornication, right? Somebody might think fornication will bring them happiness. I mean, here he differs from Scotus, who just says, well, in fornicating, you're wishing something other than happiness. Thomas here is talking about it. You, in some way, you're thinking about fornication as bringing you happiness, but it doesn't. This is still a kind of freedom. This is an interesting kind of freedom. I don't know why. A lot of the literature in medieval philosophy focuses just on this third point, the ability to make mistakes. And uh, it's very, it even narrower than that, the ability to make mistakes when you know better, which is an interesting puzzle. You know, I know that I shouldn't get drunk, but I do. Okay, so that's interesting. But why everybody should focus on it, I've never fully understood. And at least in Thomas Aquinas, you clearly have a freedom involved in making mistakes, a freedom to act or not act, and a freedom of different suitable means to an end, okay? But these are all undetermined. So our desire for happiness in general is in a way determined, at least with respect to specification, but not with respect to the details. That's in this life, okay? In the next life, there's no disagreement about this, at least for Thomas Aquinas. If we see God, we see him as completely fulfilling all our desires, He's the, the highest goodness, completeness. And so there's not going to be any liberty of exercise or specification with respect to seeing God. Now, with respect to seeing your kids, when they ask for your prayer or something, right, they say, oh, my sainted mother, okay, then you have freedom, okay, freely I respond to their prayer. But with respect to the beatific vision, no freedom. So you have this point eight. Since God's substance and the common good are one and the same, 
Everyone who sees God's very essence is moved with the very same movement of love towards God's essence itself, both insofar as it is distinct from other things and also insofar as it is the common good. And since a good is naturally loved by all things insofar as it is common, everyone who sees God through his essence is such that he cannot but love him. Thank you. Hello. So um, the third indetermination that we just talked about, am I right in thinking that's similar to the, uh, am I right in thinking that's similar to the match and gasoline example where you know better than to put the match by the gasoline, but you do it anyway? It seems like a good idea at the time. In some way, he thinks, yeah. You know, otherwise it's just crazy. Maybe I have some uncontrollable impulse in my brain and the people in neuroscience can talk about what that is. But insofar as it's a human act, yeah, yeah, no, we, I remember my neighbor did that and uh, when we were kids and he blew his whole bucket out and he was really angry. He kept saying, I destroyed the bucket, I destroyed the bucket. And I'm thinking if you drop a bunch of, I don't think it was just a match, it was flaming stuff in a bucket of gasoline, yes, that might happen. Okay. Um, so uh, I don't know if I have a question or if you could just uh, clarify a little bit about the like inability to desire or to like will the spiritual good of others more than yourself mm -hmm. I think that's what you said because wouldn't like parents even if they can't defect it like want the salvation of their children more than their own yeah he thinks no other people's bodily good yes I haven't seen many people some people are quoted as having the opinion although I don't know who, I saw a follower Peter Abelard once. It's interesting, I want to know where the first instance of this is that people in heaven uh, can, can, can do this uh, with the saints who are greater than themselves. They can wish a greater good to them. But generally, uh, no. You have to distinguish though between extensively and intensively first. I don't know what so, that is. So yeah, that's, that's what I'll be explaining. Although Thomas just calls it uh, in the extensively and in the subject, but later people call it intensively. And so in, uh, extensively is with respect to what's willed. So say in heaven, you know St. Peter's better than you, and you agree with God's decision to war him greater beatitude, so there's a way in which you will St. Peter to have greater beatitude than you will yourself. But from your perspective, you can't desire it more in intensively. And so with respect to the, the drive towards it, the impulse, it's always to your own good. Why is that? Part of it's related to is thinking about the, the structure of nature and the structure of things is directed to their own perfections as part of the good of the universe. So you have a particular role to play. A part of it you might see by thinking about what would it mean to um, right what would it mean to will somebody else's spiritual good more than my own so I can give you an example I can say okay Father Bonaventure fine looking man we're at the party tonight and all of a sudden Maureen O'Hara shows up it's false that she died and I see her getting a little too friendly with Father Bonaventure so I say, well, I care about his spiritual good more than my own. It's worse for him to fall into sin than it is for me. So I'm going to take Maureen O'Hara away from him. Okay. I mean, that would be an example of purportedly choosing somebody else's spiritual good over my own good, right? And you might be grateful to me and whatever. And, but really, really he thinks that you can't do this because... By seeking to do something evil, you become disordered in such a way there's a disorder that enters it. So as soon as you start willing against uh, your own good, the, the disorder kind of spreads. It becomes impossible to will another's good as part of that uh, common good because you've just disordered yourself. What about like a less severe case where you're just like, oh, um, I don't know, like it's COVID and there's only so many people who can go to mass and you're like, yeah. you go ahead to mass. I'll not go to, I don't know, like something like that. Yeah. 
Well, there, you, you aren't really choosing to do something wrong. Are you prolonging your own spiritual good? That's a question. And then the question is, if you're prolonging it, are you willing it more than your own? In one way or other, but, but often in kind of convoluted ways, just about everybody, uh, well, Thomists and Scotus and people from that background are going to argue that you have to. It just doesn't work to, to, to will somebody's good more than your own. So like part of these discussions of the order of charity, they're not about what you should do as opposed to something else. They're about how charity, in fact, works. Um, people who aren't Thomists or Scotus, this order will be something that you're expected to follow. But the conflict would have to be really weird. The case you mentioned, though, is a good case, and that's something discussed, where you're prolonging your own spiritual good or even minimizing it for the sake of somebody else. But they think in those cases, you aren't really uh, depriving yourself of a spiritual good. Okay, And there are typical examples of St. Paul saying, I have to remain in the body, but I'd rather be in heaven is he really acting against the spiritual good? Because it's going to take him forever to get to heaven, right? If he has to preach everywhere. Uh, yeah. So just, uh, I just want to clarify what you said to her. So basically, if I'm understanding you correctly, if you were to say to somebody, hey, you go to Mass, because uh, there's only 100 people in, so you go to Mass instead of mine, because I'm acting, because it's a charitable action, I'm in fact willing my own spiritual good by allowing this other person to go, and so I'm still kind of ultimately willing my own spiritual good? Is that what you're... Well, you might not be doing that, at least not directly, but you aren't willing the other person's spiritual good more than your own. So you're not willing against your own good or willing the other good in preference to your good. On the other hand, that is not the same thing as saying that you're willing your own good. He thinks you're really willing... Um, he, you're really willing the other person's good. It's not for your own sake. It's just you aren't willing that ahead of or against your own good. That, that's, that, that, does that help? It's like the difference between willing the good and willing the good for yourself. It's going to be good for yourself, but you don't will it as good for yourself. In fact, somebody in charity, this is a big difference with, uh, and in the new catechism, there's both explanations. But traditionally, hope is always about confidence in God and overcoming difficulties. And that's what the virtue of hope is. Uh, in Scotus, and then in many later theologians, hope is about loving God as your own happiness and desiring happiness. For Thomas Aquinas and previous writers, even the desire, the love for your own happiness through charity is part of the love for God. You're loving your own happiness for God. But loving your own happiness is not an act of hope, loving your happiness in heaven. That's an act of charity. The confidence in getting there and God's help in overcoming the difficulties, that's the hope. Okay? So even so you're willing your own spiritual good more than others, but that doesn't mean that you can't will others for their own sake. How can you do this? Because you all share the same common good to which you're all directed and in a way of which you're all a part in some way are meant to be a part, right? Because we love people through charity who are potentially part of that common good as well as actually, yeah. Let me see if I understood. So what you said made me think of like, um, or made me understand what you said in this way. Like, So we could never love someone else's happiness or will someone else's happiness more than our own because our own happiness is not sort of in, in tension or in competition to the happiness of other people. And so what I was going to ask before was if you could speak to something about the notion of sacrifice in, in the Christian life. Um, like, obviously, the, the prime example is Christ's sacrifice, mm -hmm. a total, but also kind of in the exemplar of the saint's life of total self-giving and maybe how we're supposed, you know, called to kind of uh, imitate that sort of stuff? Yeah. I'm not sure what self-giving means a lot. I hear it used, and I'm just not sure what it means. But with respect to sacrifice in the Christian life, yeah, that's just the normal order of charity. You will others 
bodily goods more than your own bodily goods. And very often you're expected to do that, not always. And that's pretty normal. So you're willing to die uh, for the community or for God because that's more important than your own good and especially your own bodily good. Um, especially when you die for another individual. Thomas thinks there's a difference with the common good. So you can die for the political common good, you can prefer that to your own good, and I think he means spiritual good there, although there's disagreement. And of course the supernatural common good, you can prefer to your own common good. But even for another individual, you can die for another individual. Now, <laughs> that's always, if it's charity, right, it's going to be to the other person as either actually or potentially in union with God through charity and a shared common good. So you're going to love God more than that person. But you could really love that person and uh, die for them. That's, that's not a problem. But you can't love other individuals. Well, Christ is different also because as human nature, you're loving the person and so you can love the human nature more than your own. So you can love Christ's soul and body more than your own under the normal condition. And John of St. Thomas and some others even say, Our Lady, insofar as she's connected with the incarnation and the hypostatic order, you can love her uh, more than yourself. I find that hard to grasp exactly what's being meant there, but I bring it up as something that people say as an exception. But those two exceptions, remember, are insofar as those two individuals are connected with a common good that is greater than all these other goods and including them. Okay. Dr. Os Osborne, thank you for an informative yeah. talk. Um, we heard about, in part of the talk, the interaction between the will and the intellect and how they work together. And my question is a two-part question. It comes from that part of the talk. Namely, it seems like when the intellect apprehends something, it's separating out what is common, but when we will something, we're willing something particular. So how is that, um, what's going on there? And then you also mentioned that the intellect moves uh, the will as a formal cause. Mm -hmm. And I guess that was something that I'd not heard before and perhaps it's related to um, the first part of my question, but yeah, those are two things I wondered if you could talk about either one of those, thanks. Okay. The will is a formal cause, and, and what was the previous one? I'm, I'm the intellect seems to separate out what is common. Okay. Oh, understanding is of universals and willing is of particulars. And there's a difference in direction because the will moves to the external, and that involves particulars uh, first, whereas the intellect strips the particular marks from the universal. That's different, that's because it has to do with the actions, which are particulars and contingent. And that's one reason why practical reasoning is so difficult and it's hard to come up with, uh, I mean, you come up with plenty of negative commands that hold all the time, right? Like don't commit adultery, don't murder. But when you say serve God or something, they're going to be very empty. Because practical reasoning is about particulars and then the willing will often be about those uh, particular results of practical reasoning. But that's a difference in the order. But we can still make judgments about particulars uh, and grasp them with the intellect, but it's just a little trickier. And there's still a way in which we can think about the good in general and will the good in general. But when I'm thinking about this coffee, I'm thinking about it as not just as an instance of coffee, but I'm drinking this coffee. He had a second question about the formal, formal causality. Formal causality. Yeah, Thomas changes his language over time. Uh, in, uh, what is it, the Prima Secundae uh, 9.2, question 9, article 2, somewhere around there. Maybe I have that here. Um, no, I don't. Or maybe is it 10, article 2? I thought it was 9. Text 6. Okay. Yeah, that's an instance of it. Some people say that as time goes on, he focuses on end rather than on specification. But through his career, they're both, he uses both descriptions. And I think they're both the same because what is the end? It's the good. How is the good made the object to the will by the intellect? All right. So the intellect's knowledge is what specifies it and gives it the form of the act 
and also what specifies it in the form is the good, which is the end. So the form and the good, I don't see how you could distinguish between the two. Uh, Father Dewan, there was a Jesuit, Father Keenan, who wrote a book making a lot about the right and the good, and I don't understand what he's getting at there. Father Dewan criticizes him at length and says that it's a pedagogical difference. The article was somewhere in Science Esprit. I don't know if it was recollected. You know, there was a collection of his ethical articles. I don't know if it was reprinted there, but it's called in something like Keenan and the Will. And he talks about the shift in terminology. But I mean, when you have got two things that, if you think about what they mean, you can't have one without the other, right? It can't be the end without being the known good and specifying it. And it can't be the known good and specifying it without being the end. So it seems to me that one view entails the other. Um, this is going back to the previous conversation, possibly being a dead horse, I apologize. Um, someone commented on uh, spiritual sacrifice, yeah. and I want to take it a step further, uh, where if you're putting yourself in a spiritually sketchy scenario, where if you're trying to talk to someone who's, um, who you know is going through a rough time, let's say you're an ex-alcoholic, and you know you can talk to them at a bar. So you want to talk to them, you want to try and encourage them, give them spiritual growth, but you're putting yourself in a risky scenario. Another one, um, trying to perhaps talk to a prostitute about the love of Jesus, but you struggle with lust. Or um, I had one other example, but with that, you're putting yourself in a spiritually dangerous scenario where your intellect knows that um, you can fail, this can hurt you, but uh, you decide to do it anyway in order to um, help out someone else's spiritual life. I mean, I, I think everybody says that if you know it's going to hurt you, you can't do it. That's fake, right? People are pretending to exposing themselves to temptation uh, and rationalizing. Um, but you do need to take into account the particular, I mean, Thomas discusses this. You need to take into account the, the person's own uh, proclivities, strength, level, etc. Right, because, I mean, this is a common objection. Our Lord used to hang out with sinners. Well, the problem was our Lord wasn't likely to party with the prostitutes, and, you know, I mean, this wasn't going to happen. Uh, some people, it might happen, right? And people are likely to overestimate their strength. So that's, um, yeah, that, that kind of example is generally not taken so seriously. Most of the examples are like when St. Paul says that he'd rather, rather wait uh, for, you know, he doesn't want to wait to die. He wants to die rather than preach. Also, when he says that he'd like to be uh, damned rather than have the Jews damned, and, and could he really mean that? And sort of the interpretations are all along my lines right up through the late medieval period. And then the late medieval period makes possible the different heresies connected with quietism. And you actually had people, so it wasn't just a philosophical problem, it was a religious heresy where you had people saying, you know, I can be indifferent to my own salvation. I'm up on some special high level of prayer and I know I just care about God's will. I don't have to make acts of faith, hope, and love anymore. And then they claim that they're like St. Paul. You know, it was a horrible heresy. People don't talk about how horrible it was, but I mean, it just hit at the root of sort of spiritual centers of France and Spain. And that was made possible by philosophical errors about free will. It became known as pure love. There are some books on it in the library here, in the regular stacks and in the rare books. And I wanted to consult them today, but they don't let people, visitors, take the books out, and the library's not open, even though they told me it would be. So, <laughs> But the Dominicans were pretty clear on, on these points about pure love. It was a weird heresy. <laughs>